Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to Cases in Treating Ocular Surface Disease. Today, Drs. Ivan Mack, Damon Durker, and Brandon Ayers discuss real-world cases and treatment involving mimbomian gland dysfunction, neurotrophic keratitis, and more. In the first case, Dr. Ivan Mack, founding partner of Metrolina Eye Associates in Charlotte, North Carolina, walks the panel through the case of a 66-year-old cataract patient with a history of LASIK. Welcome to uh, this uh, ocular surface disease uh, symposium. Uh, my name is Ivan Mack. I'm the founding partner of Metrolina Eye Associates. I practice comprehensive and uh, cataract and refractive surgery in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, I wanted to go over a, a nice uh, case that we typically see in everyday practice. And uh, hopefully you can pick up a few pearls as we go through it. I'm joined by my esteemed colleagues, Dr. Brandon Ayers and Dr. Damon Dierker, who will be assisting me and giving commentary today. Um, this is a, a unique case presentation. It's a 66-year-old lady who's uh, referred for cataract evaluation, coming in complaining of, of course, blurry vision and cloudy vision in the, in the right eye more than the left eye. She has a past history of dry eye, cataracts. And what's unique about her is she had a history of LASIK in one of her eyes, and she wasn't sure which eye had had LASIK surgery. Um, she was using Refresh every day for her artificial tears. Uh, past medical history, she had diabetes and hypercholesterolemia. Um, medications are as listed, nothing unusual. Best corrected visual acuity had decreased to 2400 in the right eye and 2050 plus two in the left eye with the refractions as shown. Again, hard to discertain which eye had had the LASIK from the refractive data. Pupils, motility, visual field, IOP were all normal. We did obtain baseline tear osmolarity testing and she has um, a significant uh, elevated tear osmolarity in the right eye more than the left eye. Uh, we noticed that she had moderate uh, myelin gland dysfunction, um, no really significant blepharitis. She, of course, had a diminished tear film and two plus punctate keratitis staining inferiorly. Um, her cataract was uh, shown uh, worse on the right eye than the left eye with significant PSC changes. Posterior segment was pretty much unremarkable for a diabetic. Um, cup to disc ratio was normal, um, no diabetic retinopathy, bilateral posterior vitreous detachments. We obtained uh, topography and also her higher order aberration analysis. She does have some cylinder in both eyes that's um, about 48 degrees at the steep axis. Her spherical aberration of minus 0.024, it's a little hard to ascertain. Maybe this is hyperopic LASIK, maybe not. Um, again, with myopic LASIK, we'll typically see higher positive spherical aberrations. Hyperopic LASIK, we'll see negative spherical aberration. So we assumed maybe um, hyperopic ablation. We weren't sure which eye. And again, from the topography, um, again, uh, she has astigmatism in both eyes. So this case brings up a number of points. Um, you know, first of all, she has you know significant ocular surface disease. So I'd like to open it up to the panel in terms of you know how would you like to tune this patient up for cataract surgery? What are the options that are available? How long do you treat her for? And then maybe we can have a discussion about maybe an appropriate intraocular lens for a unique case like this. How do we do the eye wall calculations? What targets? And is there anything with the higher order aberrations that can be helpful here? So I'll, I'll basically open it up to Dr. Dierker. I'll jump in on this. And I think that this is going to be an interesting case. I can't wait to see the ending. Uh, 
in my practice, this patient, even before they get to a surgeon, needs to have their ocular surface tuned up. So someone that has uh, hyperosmolarity, corneal staining, symptoms of dry eye, and I'm preparing the patient for cataract surgery, I think this patient certainly is going to need anti-inflammatory therapy, probably a topical steroid uh, for several weeks, probably a topical immunomodulator. Once I get the inflammation under control, I'm going to look at those glands again and decide if we need to do some sort of obstruction removal. But I think if we can do that over the next month and repeat those uh, calculations and perhaps even before they get into your chair, I think an aggressive full court press on the ocular surface here is going to be in this patient's best interest. Great thoughts. Um, anything different, Dr. Harris? You know, I totally agree, but you, do, you went through an awful lot of workup. It's just amazing how many people don't even remember what I had LASIK and what their prescription was before. I mean, they have no idea. And you can look and look and look on the surface. And it's amazing, especially with the you know, keratome LASIK, you, you can't see the flap after a couple of years in some mm -hmm. cases. You did that, that really nice investigation looking for whether there was more positive or negative spherical or aspherosity of the cornea, which is helpful at determining whether it was myopic or hyperopic LASIK. But there's so much surface disease here it might mean nothing at this point. So I really think before we, we try and figure out, you know, was this hyperopic or myopic LASIK, we've got to get the ocular surface under control. And I completely agree. In this case, I'm probably going to use, uh, we want full core press and we want fast acting agents. So I'm going to add steroid here. I'm going to add topical immunomodulator, a lot of lubricating eye drops, plus or minus maybe something for obstruction of the meibomian glands, anything to, to turbocharge the surface so we can get a better result, better biometry, better topography, so we can try and figure this puzzle out. For sure. And, um, you know, I, I certainly agree with all those points. Um, you know, if you're thinking about an IOL, um, would you consider a multifocal IOL in this case? I don't even think we could have an IOL discussion at this point. You know, the higher order aberrations, the topography, I think all of this is subject to change based on what the ocular surface looks like after we've done our full court press. Yeah, I'll second that. I, I don't think that I can tell you what IOL I would use here, but I can tell you what IOL I'd like to use here, and that is a multifocal. Um, we've used multifocals in post-refractive patients, both myopic and hyperopic, and I know that's a little bit taboo, but it's, it's not the LASIK surgery that scares me, it's the ocular surface. So that's got to be under control first. Sure. So basically, I'll kind of move the discussion along in terms of kind of what we did. This is the ocular surface tune-up protocol that I performed. I um, uh, this is my go-to protocol that I use in practice that works really well. We use um, thermal, thermal lid pulsation therapy, in this case, Sustain Ilux is what we used. We did start her on aggressive uh, topical corticosteroids. I, I like um, low-potency corticosteroids, Flarex, FML, Lodipredinol, um, twice a day BID until the bottle is empty is how I have my patients use it. I put in short-term dissolvable prolonged plugs. I don't want to use permanent plugs uh, in active MGD. Uh, we institute aggressive lid hygiene with um, lid scrubs or Avanova, and I did use aggressive artificial tears. And you know, with this uh, regimen, we were able to normalize the ocular surface in about three or four weeks, and I didn't need to use topical uh, immunomodulators uh, for this case. So I'll kind of let the cat out of the bag in terms of what we ended up using was some new technology to do her case. We uh, went ahead and decided um, that we would go ahead and do the surgery. We did her right eye first, again, her worst eye, and one week later we did her left eye. And we ended up using a light adjustable lens for her. 
Um, the light adjustable lens is a great option for these post-refractive patients, and it really shines in post-RK patients as well in, in our hands. When you treat from the hyperopic direction with your light adjustments, you actually induce a negative spherical aberration into the, um, into the optical system, and so they get a depth of focus effect. So as you can see, we did um, two uh, light, de light delivery device adjustments, and we did two lock-in sessions to uh, make her lens uh, not sensitive to UV light. And uh, she ended up with a 2025 uncorrected outcome in her right eye, 2020 in the left eye, 2015 OU and near J1. And what was nice, you can see the tear osmolarity, um, tear osmolarity scores are, are essentially normal now and have been maintained even after all the adjustments. So that, that really aggressive ocular uh, surface uh, tune-up in the, in the front end pays dividends for this patient in the long run here. And this is real similar to what we would offer in our practice, a post-refractive patient. We've had a light adjustable lens. We were part of the clinical trial years ago and then have introduced that again this year. And I think it's a, a wonderful case for that. This mini monovision works really well for these patients. But the one thing that will hang up and throw a wrench in the whole process of the surgery and, and the, the adjustments is untreated ocular surface disease. Of course. So I really think that you have to be aggressive, even more so with these light adjustable lenses to make sure that this patient has the best experience and the best long-term outcome with this technology. Yeah. Once so, you know, I second that, and I think it's the cornea specialist in me. I would have done the almost the exact same plan, same treatments, but I would have myself added a long-term anti-inflammatory because I see that, that rapid improvement with the steroid. Uh, I don't have an iLux device, but we have other devices that we use for treating MGD. They work great, they work fast, but they're limited run. So for me, in the long-term, I'd probably also add a prescription anti-inflammatory thinking down the road so we don't get some regression of the OSD. But, uh, but for pre-surgical planning, that's a great regimen. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you, everybody, for my case. It was an honor to present to you guys and my esteemed colleagues. In this next case, Dr. Damon Durker, Director of Optometric Services at Eye Surgeons of Indiana, shares the case of a 66-year-old female patient referred for cataract evaluation and ocular surface disease screening. Dr. Durker found a visually significant cataract in both eyes, as well as some mybobian gland obstruction. Hi, my name is Damon Durker. I am Director of Optometric Services at Eye Surgeons of Indiana, and this is my case. I've got a 66-year-old white female. This patient had a um, positive score, 7 out of 22. She has some eye discomfort and eye dryness. She's referred by an optometrist for a cataract evaluation, but we are screening not only for cataract, but for ocular surface disease. Naturally, she wants to be independent of, of spectacles at distance. Uh, she has a 2030 best corrected vision. She is a high myope with significant astigmatism. She has some meibomian gland obstruction and poor meibom quality. She has a rapid tear breakup time, but no corneal staining. She does have a, a visually significant cataract in both eyes and a normal, uh, unremarkable posterior uh, segment. So this is a patient that really wants her best distance vision. Um, we're thinking about, you know, obviously using uh, astigmatism correction. We do need to do preoperative measurements. So at this initial visit, we did topography and uh, axial length. These measurements can sometimes give us a false impression of what's really going on. If her ocular surface is not stable, we may be missing um, some astigmatism, or maybe that astigmatism will actually be less once we've optimized the surface. So this patient, we've assessed a visually significant cataract in both eyes. In our practice, we do laser-assisted surgery. 
And we can either choose a toric IOL or do arcuate incisions to manage her astigmatism, depending on the amount of the astigmatism in her cornea. Our goal is great distance vision in both eyes. She does know she's gonna need a reading uh, RX afterwards. Uh, but we really are not gonna push this patient to surgery in a week or two. We really wanna optimize the ocular surface. She does have some rapid tear breakup time. I'm gonna start an omega fatty acid supplement. And then based on that meibomian gland obstruction, I think she's gonna really benefit from a thermal pulsation procedure. And usually this regimen works really well to tune up the ocular surface. We can get better measurements. We can have a better surgical plan, potentially leading to a better outcome for this patient. In this case, we uh, recommended and performed ILUX. This is an uh, application of light-based heat with a handheld device, uh, eight to 12 minute treatment, therapeutic temperature between 38 and 42 degrees Celsius. Uh, we're able to actually visualize the, a, a therapeutic endpoint. We're able to see that MIBA melted. So a rapid way to improve the health of her meibomian glands. And we've started that omega-3 supplement as well. Uh, we bring her back three, four weeks after we've done that treatment. Her DEQ5 uh, score has de decreased, so she is symptomatically better in terms of dry eye. Obviously, the cataract is still there. She still has reduced corrected vision to 20-30. There's minimal obstruction. And now instead of having cloudy myba, most of what we're seeing are clear secretions from the glands. But the biggest point of the story is we've changed her topography. You know, we've now have a better measurement. We actually unmasked and uncovered uh, more astigmatism after we've optimized the ocular surface with thermal pulsation and omega fatty supplements. So this is gonna change her surgical plan. She's gonna probably need more significant astigmatic correction based on this repeat measurement. In this case, we did laser-assisted surgery, arcuate incisions. She is one month post-op now after having surgery in both eyes. She is absolutely thrilled with her vision. Her uncorrected vision in this case, remember she was minus 10 pre-op. She's uncorrected at distance at 2015 in each eye. We've asked her to continue her omega supplements. She just finished her post-operative drops. Her cornea looks great. She's happy. And this is a point now where we're going to co-manage this patient and get this patient back to her primary care optometrist to manage you know, anything that she needs, probably some reading glasses, and then to have continued routine care going forward. So that's my case. I think it's one that's uh, fairly straightforward in terms of management, but I really think the proactive nature in terms of how we want to manage patients in, in this day and age that have high expectations, uh, this is a once in a life opportunity for these patients to have vision correction. And we, we just need to take our time and get it right. So Dr. Ayers, what are your thoughts on this case? Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. You know, I agree 100%. And it, it's amazing how often we see these, you know, seemingly small but meaningful changes in biometry just by paying attention to the ocular surface. And whether we're looking at lid margin disease and tear breakup times, whether we're, we're seeing some mild punctate epithelial changes in the inferior cornea, or we're looking at major changes like Salzman's nodules and ABM dystrophy in the visual axis. Paying attention to that gives you better outcomes and it gives you happier patients. And so, you know, I think spending that extra time, I, I like the idea of the DEQ5, listening to your patients and looking at the surface and treating, you're gonna do better in the end, happier patients, whether it's cataract surgery, glasses, contacts, doesn't matter what it is, you're gonna have happier patients. 
I definitely concur with all these all these findings too. One thing that I really find gratifying with uh, with tuning up the ocular surface prior to uh, refractive cataract surgery or any cataract surgery for that matter, is um, you know the, the numbers can change. We know um, uh, Cynthia Matosin and Alice Epitropoulos released a study uh, a couple of years ago that showed you know significant improvement um, in uh, let or less variability with. Uh, with uh, optimizing the ocular surface prior to cataract surgery. And I completely agree with those findings in my practice. But um, what's interesting is I, I can basically rule in more patients for advanced refractive options by treating the ocular surface that I would never have considered in the front end. So we qualify more patients for panoptics or, or other uh, presbyopia correcting solutions that we would never have done in the, in the first place. And also, um, you know, we also look at higher order aberrations for our patients and treating the ocular surface preoperatively, the aberration profile can significantly improve as well. Dr. Mack, I know you're very aggressive with this for all sorts of patients preoperatively, but if this patient wants to be spectacle lens independent at distance and mm -hmm. she's not so interested in treating her OSD or delaying her surgery, how does that conversation look like in, in your chair? So basically I had this conversation with my patients that said, it's gonna take us optimizing the ocular surface to get you a great result. You know, I, I, this is the line that I use for my patients. You know, unless we tune up the ocular surface prior to cataract surgery, I'm gonna deliver an outcome that both you and I are not, not proud of. And it, that buys in um, with my patients right there, that line. And they will do, if you recommend the options, it is almost never will a patient say, no, I don't wanna do that. And, um, you know, just recommend the options, spend the time, invest the resources. It's well worth your time because you get half your patients. And we know that optimizing the ocular surface, we get better measurements, which only leads to better outcomes. Yeah, I agree completely. Dr. Ayers, any final thoughts on this case? You know, I, what I like about these cases is uh, it gives me another thing to send back to the referring doctor. So there's plenty of times that somebody's referred in and we take care of, you know, whatever their issue is. And in this case, it's a cataract. And then I want to make sure that patient gets back to the referring doctor. And when we bring in treating the ocular surface, it's a great segue, you know, hey, you know, patient, you know, Mr. Jones, Mrs. Jones, you're, you're doing really well. Your vision's great. But remember, we have this dry eye. So I want you to follow up with your regular eye doctor in another month or two, and they're going to continue this treatment. So I think it's important to have that handshake with the referring doc or either whether it's MD or OD who sent me that patient. But it's also a great way of making sure that that patient gets back and continues the care with their referring doctor. More than one good thing about, about uh, optimizing the ocular surface. Absolutely. So a collaborative approach to be patient-centric, make sure this patient has the best outcome, make sure their vision is uh, clear and comfortable. Uh, again, doing this proactively, having a screening questionnaire, putting some dye in the eye, pressing on the glands, this is going to result in happier patients. And I think that handoff back to the referring provider uh, with a validation that yes, you do need to have this continued management of your MGD and dry eye and have that OD take over from there as well as any sort of other post-operative care as well. I think these are opportunities to just make sure we're doing the very best thing for our patients. So that's my case. Uh, thank you so much. In the final case, Dr. Brandon Ayers from the cornea service at Wills Eye Hospital in Philadelphia discusses the case of a 63-year-old male patient who presented with reduced vision due to a dislocated IOL in the capsular bag. 
Hello, my name is Brandon Ayers. I'm from the coronary service at Wills Eye Hospital in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I wanted to share a case from the complex case files. Um, I wanted to share some information with my colleagues on this talk, Dr. Ivan Mack and Dr. Damon Dierker, see if they can help me out with some decision-making and see how to treat this patient. We've got a 63-year-old man who presented to see me due to reduced vision due to a dislocated eye well in the capsular bag. His past ocular history includes diabetes and has been treated by retina specialists for 15 years. About 10 years ago, had cataract surgery, which was reported as uncomplicated, and five years ago, had a retinal detachment requiring a pars plane of vitrectomy. These are probably some of the issues that led to him having this dislocated IOL in the capsular bag. We ended up taking him to the operating room to do a lens exchange with an additional vitrectomy, putting in a haptic fixated IOL. Now, I thought with this case that we were going to fix this fellow's eye, be the hero, and be done with it. Initially, after his surgery, his vision was good. Achieving a vision around 2040, I sent him back to his referring doctors. But a few months later, he was sent back to see me with a report of something wrong with the cornea. And, and it wasn't real clear. They said it had an infection, it had something wrong, but he noted a change in his vision from being good after the surgery to not so good a few months later. Vision was 20-30 in the right eye, 20-50 in the left. Remember, he recovered vision of 20-40. Motility was full. Fields were full. But he had a little bit of reduced sensation in the left eye when we checked with the cotton tip applicator. Before he was sent back to me, the referring doctors had already tried multiple antibiotics over several weeks. Nothing seemed to really do the trick. They tried bandage contact lenses that reportedly didn't really fix the problem. They'd even tried self-retaining amniotic membranes. So Ivan, we've got a, a, a patient who's got a history of diabetes. He's had retinal surgery. He's had lens surgery a couple of times, started doing well, and now he's regressing. And what do you think about his history and where should we go from here? It seems like a lot of things have already been tried. Um, you know, being a diabetic and, you know, decreased corneal sensation there, I mean, this is a prime setup for, for neurotrophic keratitis. And you can see, um, you know, an epithelial defect. Um, I, I trust the patient wasn't any significant ocular discomfort. You know what? His only complaint was I could see better before and now it's reduced. Now my vision's worse. No pain at all. Yeah. And I imagine this is temporally over the, the cataract opening. It's actually a little bit apical to the cataract wound. I initially thought maybe that was an infected wound, but my wound is actually distal. I do a very limbal wound for these, but still it's in the, in the region of, the, of multiple incisions now in this cornea. Sure. Yeah, I mean, this is a perfect setup for a neurotrophic process. And I think they were trying therapy along that line in the past, you know, um, and it seems like this is a, a certainly a non-healing uh, neurotrophic keratitis. There are different options that you can do um, to treat this. Um, we have kind of old school options and we have some new school options, so. I think the case was managed appropriately by the optometrist. You know, we, we have to, we see a new epithelial defect. We have to make sure this is not an infectious process. It's not responding to antibiotic. That's the, the optometrist is already thinking this is maybe neurotrophic. They put a BCL and then, uh, you know, a. Uh, amniotic membrane. So I think that this case it has, you know, all of these things with multiple ocular surgeries, the diabetes, more and more, I, I, we're seeing these cases of neurotrophic, we have better treatment options now. So I think we're looking at this more. I think it's a, a clear cut that we need another solution here. 
beyond what's been tried. But th these cases, especially you know, punctate keratitis that doesn't respond to topical anti-inflammatory therapy, and they have uh, other risk factors for neurotrophic disease, I think you really have to have this on your radar if you want to be managing these patients appropriately. So the guys, I agree. Now, I, it, was, it was ingrained in my soul as a fellow to always check sensation. I, I did my fellowship with Peter Lapson, and he would absolutely just beat it into you that you need to check sensation on every patient. But, you know, you look at this eye, the eye's relatively white and quiet. It's not a real inflamed eye. But these are those cases where you're like, why won't this heal? Like, what is going on here? It's so small. How come you won't heal cornea? And it's because of the sensation. The cornea doesn't know that it's supposed to heal. It doesn't even know there's a problem in it. So we have the diagnosis now of a stage two neurotrophic corneal ulcer, artificial tears, bandage contact lenses, tarsorophies, ointments, plugs, you know, all of those things to beef up the ocular surface, hoping to convince it to heal. But sometimes they don't work. Now, I do think you have to be careful. We do have an epithelial defect. It's been there for a long time. I didn't think it looked infected, but I said, look, you know what? We're just gonna do some cultures just to make sure this is not a infectious keratitis. And I continued antibiotics because even a neurotrophic non-infected ulcer can become secondarily infected. I did place a plug in the lower punctum and that's to elevate the tear film so that we basically shrink the interpalpebral space. Plugs seem to work very nicely for neurotrophic patients. And we started this patient as quickly as we could on recombinant human nerve growth factor, commonly known as Oxervate. It didn't take long. Four weeks after instituting treatment with Oxervate, vision is back to 2030. His vision is actually better than it ever was after the surgery. My thought is there was probably some form of neurotrophic keratitis going on the whole time leading to ocular surface disease, ended up breaking down into an epithelial defect. Now we're treating the root source of the problem and the overall health of the ocular surface is getting better, giving us better vision than ever. I have not had the chance to use, um, you know, Oxrobate yet. Um, do you find that once these heal, if you're using Oxrobate, are they going to get less scarring long-term, do you think? So, you know, interesting, it's a good question, and I, I don't have a great answer for you. But what I do have is a cohort of patients who have been dealing with really like a stage one or mild stage two neurotrophic keratitis for years in some cases that we have actually falsely diagnosed as dry eye, crummy surface, epithelial ridges, and that haze in the cornea that you can see. And after finally checking sensation and giving them a verified diagnosis of neurotrophic keratitis treated with Oxervate for you know, several weeks, usually it's an eight week course, and the surface looks remarkably better. So, I mean, in this case, it's like the, the ulcer was never there. I, I don't think it's always this dramatic, but in early disease, before there's really scarring in the stroma, before it's a true ulcer, like a stage three thinned ulcer, it's just that epithelial defect. I think with some healing and some, some neural growth factor, we can really you know, minimize the scarring and the impact on the surface. I think that this is a fantastic case showing um, appropriate treatment with newer interventions that we have. Again, I think getting up to this point, the treatments that were tried were appropriate, but it used to be that you'd have to give this patient a tarsorophy to fix their problem. And now you give them drops at home uh, for right. four weeks and we've got a resolution of a problem and even better vision than they had when they, before they had the problem. So it's, it's pretty amazing. You know, even with the staining, you really can't tell that there was a neurotrophic defect there. I mean, I, I was just 
super impressed with the the impact that Oxervate had on this patient's not only the neurotrophic epithelial defect but also the overall ocular surface. Interestingly, in the studies using nerve growth factor in Oxervate, an eight-week course can continue to impact the surface for almost a year. So treating early, getting rid of the ulcer, will continue to help for it you know, a year or maybe even more. I guess we'll find out as this patient uh, continues to hopefully do well. Well, that concludes my case. Ivan, Damon, thank you so much for contributing. I say get out there, check sensation, and, and when appropriate, start prescribing some nerve growth factor. Thank you to our panel for an engaging and informative discussion. And thank you for listening.